From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello, welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show, and I'm honored that you're joining us today. And for that matter, I'm very glad we're broadcasting today since the Mayan calendar predicted the end of the world three days ago. So we're all here. To me, the fact that the Mayan calendar ended didn't seem much different than reaching the last day in my desk or pocket calendar. That's why we didn't have a special show recently on investments you should make in preparation for the end of the world. I wasn't expecting the world to end. But many other people took the event very seriously and uh, viewed it as a big concern. They stockpiled their homes, basements, or garages with food to last them for a number of years. Bon appetit. Hopefully you've invited some family and friends to listen with you today. What better way to kick off Christmas Eve together than to huddle around the radio? Incidentally, we are broadcasting live today. So uh, unlike uh, unleather, you know, the other radio shows that will broadcast some previously recorded program or maybe even play an archived show, we welcome you to give us questions and comments, and we do have a chat window below the uh, radio player that you can enter comments, and you also can call in. We'll talk about those details in just a few minutes. We've uh, planned a show for you today that's very appropriate for year-end, especially if you've developed some non-supportive beliefs or habits. This is the perfect time of the year to become aware of and understand them. They say that 50% of solving any problem is recognizing there is a problem. Certainly you'd agree with that statement when it comes to addictions. And it could just be that you've developed some addictions. I'm not talking about substance abuse or gambling or overeating, although if any of those apply to you, it's also the perfect time to become aware of and understand the addiction and start dealing with it. Just in time for the new year. I'm specifically talking about the addiction to poverty. Hopefully you'll recall our conversation with Dr. Michael Carlton about two years ago on the addiction to poverty. Dr. Carlton is such a fascinating person that the time flew by very quickly. We talked about addictions in general, and we spent some time on marijuana, which I was very curious about, and then we focused on the addiction to poverty. Now, I'll admit, I was learning so much in the first two segments that I didn't leave enough time for the key topic, but we did cover it, and I think pretty well. If you missed that show, then give yourself a Christmas present. Go to our archive and listen to that show sometime in the next 12 days. Yes, tomorrow is just the first day of Christmas. There are 11 more after that. Today we'll be focusing on the D in Wealth DNA and specifically on how the obstacle holds back the largest number of people from becoming wealthy. Hopefully you recall D stands for desire. Well, it also stands for decision, dedication, and even discipline. Since all of those aspects are part of the Wealth DNA, D, the D in Wealth DNA. As I occasionally do on the show, I'll start by sharing a quote. And I'll actually share many more during the show. Fortunately, we archive the show. So if you you can always go back and jot down the quotes that were most relevant to you. If a few were a few of you contact me and say, Hey, those quotes were great. I'd love to have the you know a copy of them and we will put them together in a PDF and put it up on our website. So uh, let us know. It's a fairly long quote, so are you ready? I'll break it up into two pieces. There is a secret psychology of money. Most people don't know about it. It's why most people never become financially successful. Hopefully, hopefully I have your attention now for the rest of the quote. It's a continuation. A lack of money is not the problem. It is merely a symptom of what's going on inside of you. That quote is from Harvecker, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Today is December 24th, 2012, which is also Christmas Eve. It's 9.04 a.m. in Phoenix, Arizona, and 5.04 p.m. in continental Europe. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The, the show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Now, the bad, no, uh, bad news I have for you, it is our last show. Our last show for 2012, that is. Now, how is that for strategically placed pause? 
I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, you can hear it on the archives. Just go to www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive, and there you'll find our interview with Dr. Michael Carlton on the addiction to poverty and other great shows. Incidentally, the link we included in our email announcement is the same link that takes you to the archive of today's show. Or should I say, hopefully, takes you to the archive of today's show. We welcome your comments and questions during the show. You can either either use the chat window, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and that's below the radio player, or call in. Our producer will put you through. The call-in number is 917-388-4162, which is also shown at the top of the screen. Now, the U.S. equity markets, after a slightly more volatile week, are off to a negative start. The Asian markets were mixed, with Japan mostly down, and Europe is mixed, more markets down than up, and Brazil is down. Incidentally, on the last few shows, I mentioned that 2012 has been an unusually calm year for the equity markets, and that I expected volatility to start increasing. We'll see. I already cited one quote from The Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by Harvecker, and to avoid confusion later in the show, I need to let you know that I'll be referring to several books today, including The Millionaire Mind by Thomas Stanley. The titles are similar, but they are two different books. Now, in addition to similar titles and topics, they're both excellent and worth having in your library, which reminds me of another quote, Rich People have small TVs and big libraries, and poor people have small libraries and big TVs. Zig Ziglar. There's also another book by Thomas Stanley that I'll be referring to, The Millionaire Next Door, a well-known book. I should mention, especially some of our newer listeners, that Wealth DNA um, uh, you know, is a, a framework of the obstacles, and DNA uh, is actually an acronym. It's an acronym of those three main obstacles that stop people from becoming wealthy. The overall Wealth DNA framework has a PS, a postscript, you only reap what you sow. And each of the three obstacles also have their own PS. The first obstacle, the D, which stands for desire, its PS is prepare the soil. Also, the astute listeners probably notice that prepare starts with a P and soil starts with an S, hence the PS has a dual meaning. So officially, D stands for desire. And it seems counterintuitive that this obstacle would hold back 50% or more of the population from becoming wealthy. You see, if you ask anybody that you know or that you work with or you happen to see on the street and ask them if they'd like to become wealthy, or even if they have the desire to become wealthy, nearly all of them will say they do. So where's the obstacle? Now, clearly, our interview with Dr. Carlton pointed out a number of the aspects in our subconscious that contradict that desire. You remember the quote from Harvecker that I mentioned earlier? A lack of money is not the problem. It is merely a symptom of what's going on inside of you. See, the subconscious is part of that's inside, and that's what stops people from becoming wealthy. Could it be holding you back? I love the story that Dr. Carlton shared about the gentleman that went up to the concert pianist and praised him for how wonderfully he played and how he, too, would love to play as that concert pianist does. And the concert pianist's response, no, you don't. And he repeated that several times despite the objections from the gentleman who had approached him and said he truly wanted to play that well. The pianist finally explained, if you wanted to play as well as I do, you would. Powerful saying. In other words, wanting to play well, merely a stated desire, is not the same as having a true desire. Making the decision to be one of the best pianists in the world and doing whatever it takes and having the dedication to practice, 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 having the drive for perfection, and the willingness to repeat the music and the scales that are difficult to play and giving you the most problem. The discipline to turn down offers to go to the movies or to see a ball game with friends or watch some TV shows if you haven't put in enough hours to practice. The words I just used were not coincidence. They all started with a D. Desire 
decision, dedication, drive, and discipline. You see, they're all elements of true desire. So true desire includes making the decision and having the dedication, drive, and discipline to be wealthy. Although no one has mentioned it yet, I think there are some skeptics out there who wonder if this whole wealth DNA framework is really accurate. Is there any evidence that something in our subconscious could actually hold us back from becoming wealthy, or for that matter, losing weight or causing us to complain? And the fact that Dr. Carlton said some things that were consistent with this framework what may not be enough for some skeptics. He, incidentally, was the person who inspired me to put together the Wealth DNA Framework since it was the missing piece in the work that I had been doing to help people become better investors. You see, I was sharing knowledge about various investments and encouraging people to take action, making a very bad assumption. I assumed that they all had the same desire to become wealthy that I have. While I was listening to his presentation on the addiction to poverty, this was about five years ago, I was fascinated and shocked to realize that many people have been brainwashed, for a lack of a better word, during their youth, their education, or even in their religious background to believe it was a bad thing to become wealthy. And I realized that this expert on chemical addiction knew what he was talking about. And most of the phrases, stories, and even Bible passages he cited made me realize how we are all exposed to many messages that program us, that condition us, that are embedded in our subconscious. That despite some declarations, it can require a lot of work to change that subconscious. Let me share a few very key concepts from Harvecker's Secrets of the Millionaire Mind that hopefully will start to nudge even the staunchest skeptics. Mr. Ecker uses an analogy of a tree to explain the fundamental concept of money versus our subconscious. Picture a tree. Now, ideally, I picture a fruit tree or a blossoming tree, not necessarily a uh, Christmas tree. If that tree has very little fruit or few blossoms, there's nothing you can do to increase the amount of or quality of the fruit. The fruit on the tree is very much like wealth or money in your portfolio, or your health, or your weight. It is a result of what's beneath the surface. If you'd like to increase the quality or quantity of fruit from this tree, you have to focus on the invisible. In other words, the roots. If the amount of water or nutrients the roots are getting from the soil is not sufficient, you can prune or you can scream at the tree and it won't change the fruit. If you add fertilizer and water or enable the roots to expand and will have, it will have an impact on the fruit. When someone says they don't have enough money, it's an indication there's something going on below the surface. In other words, in their subconscious. Mr. Ecker even used a more dramatic version of that quote in his book. A lack of money is never, ever, ever a problem. A lack of money is merely a symptom of what is going on underneath. Think about that when you say, I don't have the money. He uses the tree to exemplify the cause and result relationship. Fruit, just like wealth, health, your waiter, money you have are all results. And all these results are part of the outer world, that visible world we can see. The causes that drive those results are the invisible or the inner world, just like our subconscious and the roots on that tree. He goes on to point uh, to build on this particular point, and I will quote him here. What you cannot see in the world is far more powerful than anything you can see. Hmm. Profound statement, possibly. If what we see is the result and the cause what we don't see. Hopefully even the skeptics are starting to see that maybe there is something to this desire obstacle. Now in the book, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, that I'm talking about, Harv Ecker also mentions a very important principle, the law of attraction. 
and you may have heard this from other sources, there are three or maybe even more aspects of the law of attraction, all of which are kind of like definitions in a, in a uh, dictionary. They all are pretty much the same, just different variations. Like attracts like is probably the most common that we think of. Secondly, by focusing on positive or negative thoughts, you can bring about positive or negative results. And thirdly, what you focus on expands. They're all just different ways of saying the law of attraction. He focuses on this third aspect and emphasizes it, and specifically our thoughts and feelings around money. He also provides us the process of manifestation, and he expresses it as a formula. You might want to jot this down. It's very good. Your thoughts lead to your feelings, lead to your actions, lead to results. Let me repeat that. Your thoughts lead to your feelings, to your actions, which lead to your results. Notice I am again referring back to results just like the wealth or your health. And if we look at the formula backwards, and that's why it helps to write it down, we can say that our actions lead to those results. Our results are driven by our actions. So obviously eating right and exercising will lead to better health. Investing properly by following the investment fundamentals will increase our wealth. But our actions are driven by our feelings. You might say, I don't really feel like exercising today. So you don't. And your health doesn't increase as you had expected. Incidentally, I already went to work out at 6 a.m. today. That's dedication. Or maybe you say that despite some financial experts saying that the higher equity markets rise, the riskier they get, and you've heard that on this show, you have a feeling that it will just keep going up this time. This time is different for you. You have that feeling. What we think about drives those feelings, and it's those thoughts that drive our natural reactions for things, uh, to, to how we react to things that happen. And they're all based on what's in our subconscious. And this brings me to the bulk of that particular book. He focuses on 17 wealth files that each of us have in our minds, whether they're full, they're empty, they're positive, or they're negative. The contents are different for each person and he specifically focuses on how the contents of those wealth files differ for people that are rich versus those that are poor. He explains these wealth files are like file drawers in our brain. It's a good analogy. If one of those file drawers has to do with how we invest with the market is reaching new highs, and we've never had that experience, that file is empty. We probably don't respond in any way, shape, or form, so we just don't have a natural reaction. Now, if the only thing we have in that file is what you heard from some expert that equities outperform all other, all other asset classes in the long term, which, by the way, is a pretty good assumption, and that's the only particular, the only thing you have in that particular file, then you decide to keep buying even though the prices are higher. On the other hand, if you listen to our show on the first commandment of investing and that story is the most prominent thing in that wealth file, then you're gradually selling as stocks go up in price. Now, let me share a few of these wealth files on how the rich think and each of these on, on, on each of these topics. Sorry. So how the rich think on each of these topics, and we'll contrast it to how the poor think. Now, keep in mind that process of manifestation I mentioned earlier, that these thoughts, the thoughts we'll be talking about in these wealth files are what drive your feelings, which in turn drive your actions and thus your results. So our thoughts make a huge difference. And it's very, very likely that if you think like a poor person about any of these topics, your results just might be a lack of money. Now, even before Mr. Ecker shared the uh, actual 17 wealth files, he shared some important points, which we've talked about on the show before, which demonstrate this difference in thinking. On the topic of how you view rich people, and ask yourself, how do you view rich people? Rich people would answer, they're charitable, generous, benevolent. They create jobs. They expand the economy. 
etc. A poor person would answer, they're greedy, they're stinking rich, filthy rich, they cheat people, they manipulate people, they take advantage of employees, etc. How do you view rich people? On the topic of money, rich people would answer, money is important. It clearly has a place in our society. Without money, there would be no hospitals, no firefighters, no police. A poor person would answer, money isn't important, or money doesn't bring happiness, or money isn't as important as love. Now, on that last phrase, Harvecker had a great response to that statement. Now, is that comparison dumb or what? What's more important, your arm or your leg? Maybe they're both important. My answer to that statement would have been, rather than choosing money or love, I'd choose both. So ask yourself, how do you view money? Now, the mindset of these two groups, a poor person's mindset is to survive. A rich person's mindset is to thrive. What's yours? Now, let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you've missed some of the prior shows, like the early ones in 2010 when we shared the Wealth DNA Framework, or the interview with Dr. Michael Carlton, or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. Now, if you'd like to get a reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things, or both. Just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us, and we'll keep you posted about future shows and events, or in the upper left side of your screen, just under the Boomer and the Babe's picture, click the follow button. You'll be informed of each of the great shows on the Boomer and the Babe Network. Now, a reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions. Either start a chat in the area below the radio player or call in 917-388-4162. And that number is at the top of the screen. The question we're addressing, how do you think? Do you think like rich people do? Or do you think like poor people do? Let's cover now of some of the 17 wealth files covered in The Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by Harvecker. Obviously, we won't cover all of them. I'd love to, because they're great. Let's start with the first, a view of their life. Rich people would answer, I create my life. A poor person would answer, life happens to me. Now, there are actually four subtopics to this important wealth file. The first subtopic is being a victim. You see, with rich people, there are no rich victims. It's not a topic we talk about. Let's use Warren Buffett as an example. In 2008, his net worth dropped by $23 billion due to the market crash. Did you worry about whether Warren Buffett would survive, whether he'd be able to eat, whether he'd be able to have dinner that night? A poor person, they play the role of the victim. As Harvecker emphasized, it doesn't mean they are a victim, but they play the role of the victim. Poor me, I lost my job, so I can't pay the rent or the car payments. And now the dish is threatening to cut off the 500 channels on my satellite. Things are getting so bad, I have to borrow cigarettes. And then we have the blame game. Rich people take responsibility for their actions, and results. No such thing as a blame game. A poor person, they try to find someone or something to blame. I wouldn't have lost my job if it wasn't for that greedy manager who's trying to get a bigger bonus by cutting staff, or the other two guys on the team who always had it out for me. And they might even rationalize. And that's the next piece, justifying. Rich people would answer, I create my life. I take responsibility for what goes wrong or what goes well. The uh, poor person would say, I never liked that job anyway. They never paid me what I was worth, or money is not all that important anyway. If I had done well, I would have lost it later, and so on and so on. And then the final subtopic to this first wealth file, complaining. And this one's very important. I'd suggest you'd kind of think through this one. Rich people, focus on what's going well, which then expands. 
The more they notice what's going well, the more the confidence grows that they'll be successful. A poor person focuses on what's wrong, which then expands. They don't complain because their life is crappy. Their life is crappy because they complain. As Harvecker appropriately said, and I quote, complaining is the absolute worst possible thing you can do for your health or your wealth. The worst. He suggests an exercise. No complaining for just seven days. And he also says this exercise just might be a life changer for many people. Can you do it? Second wealth file is the money game. This is one of my favorites. Rich people play to win. How? They play offense. They're driving forward. They're determined to win. Their objective to be wealthy. A poor person, they play not to lose. How? They play defense, avoiding risks, playing it safe, trying to avoid others from winning. Their objective, earn just enough to pay the bills, or maybe to be comfortable. Incidentally, there is a big difference between comfortable and being wealthy, and if your objective is just to have enough to pay the bills, you may have programmed yourself to spend anything you have left over. Third wealth file, I won't have time to cover uh, more than this. To me, uh, well, let me me start with what it is. Commitment is the third wealth file. Commitment. Now, to me, um, commitment is another word for determination or dedication, which I mentioned earlier. How do rich people view commitment? Or how are they committed? They're committed to being rich. You have to be truly committed to risk your time, your capital, and your effort, all of which I happened to mention earlier. A poor person wants to be rich. They focus on the downside and may justify it by saying, if I made a lot of money, I might lose it. If I have a lot of money, uh, I would have to manage it all. If I had a lot of money, everyone will want something from me. They'll want handouts. Now, does that happen to sound like something you've heard a lot about in the news lately, as politicians discuss the fiscal cliff? The government wants to go to the wealthy for a handout, so we can keep spending and giving to those who have less. Clearly, Congress and the President haven't read this book, or any others we'll be talking about today. Let me share a story with you that describes this topic of commitment to me. No, this story is not from the book, but it really does provide a definition for the word commitment. To describe or to define commitment, think of a family breakfast. A chicken makes a commitment to provide eggs, so the family can have eggs for breakfast. But the commitment isn't nearly the same level as the pig who provides the ham or the bacon for breakfast. So if you ever think of yourself uh, of uh, describing rich or you catch yourself, I guess a better term, describing rich or wealthy people as pigs, then think of this story. They truly are committed to a good breakfast for their family. Hopefully you've noticed that it would be great to have somebody like Harvecker on this show in the future, and that's part of our plans. Now, the staunchest skeptics might be thinking, okay, so a couple of other experts would agree with this idea behind the D in in wealth DNA. But is there any proof that a strong desire will make a difference? Maybe it just has to do with the fact that some people are born rich and others are born poor. Let me share a few key concepts from The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley and William Danko. Great book. Analyzed a number of millionaires and multimillionaires and tried to understand what they do differently than others that help them to become wealthy. There are a few key differences from Harv Ecker's book. The book is based on an analysis of thousands of people with high incomes and high net worth. So it's an actual um, research study based on uh, people. So this is empirical evidence. Harv Ecker used the word rich, Stanley and Danko use the term wealthy, a term I prefer. And there is a clear difference, as I'll explain, using their words between um, the uh, rich and the wealthy. 
If you ask the majority of people about the lifestyles of millionaires, what would you hear? Well, you might hear they buy expensive clothes. They live in the most expensive neighborhoods. In expensive homes, they drive expensive cars, eat in the nicest restaurants, belong to the finest country clubs, and they travel to exotic locations. So when starting their research, Stanley and and Danko uh, basically went, uh, and I should tell you why they did this research. It wasn't to write a book. Their business is consulting to companies who want to market to the wealthy. So they need to understand the habits of the wealthy and then where they work and how they you know, how they live and where they are so that they could help their clients better. They initially sent questionnaires to people living in the finest, most expensive neighborhoods because that's where they'll find the millionaires. And then asked to meet with them to understand their lifestyle and their ingredients to success. They were shocked by what they found. There were very few wealthy people living in those neighborhoods. So they had to modify their survey. Now, in doing their research, they also developed a criteria for measuring or comparing how successful people are at accumulating wealth. They developed a very logical measure to differentiate them and classify them into quartiles, the lowest and the upper are the ones we'll focus on, less on the middle. The formula for an average accumulator of wealth, so this is a calculation you can do for everybody, including yourself, and hopefully you will, is multiply your age times your realized pre-tax annual household income from all sources, so your your pre-tax income, not after tax, and then divide that multiplication by 10. And this is what your net worth should be. Okay, Great calculation everybody should do. Incidentally, and, and, and in their official formula, they exclude uh, any inheritance from income or assets. So if you had inheritance income in your past years and you're counting that, throw it out of there. If you're including it in your assets, throw it out of there too. So your normal income uh, multiplied by your age, divided by 10. Okay, let's take a few examples of people that we might consider typical. Somebody age 50, earning $50,000. So that's 50 times 50,000 divided by 10 gives us 250,000 net worth to be an average accumulator of wealth. All right, let's take somebody younger earning more, 35 earning $75,000. They should have $263,000 of net worth. Now let's take a doctor age 40, earning $150,000 a year. 40 times 150 divided by 10 gives us 600,000. So by the age of 40, that doctor should have accumulated 600,000. Now let's take a um, retiree that's been earning a good salary, 65000 He's been earning $100,000. So that would mean that retiree should have $650,000 of net worth. You'll notice these aren't shocking amounts. But remember, we're talking about the average accumulators of wealth. Hopefully, you're calculating yours as we talk. Then they define the top and bottom quartile. And again, this is from straight research. This isn't, you know, they obviously came up with it um, uh, during the process. But this is the top quartile turned out to be uh, a group whose net worth was twice the average. They named that top quartile PAWs, P, prodigious accumulators of wealth. And because that's a mouthful, I will use the PAW occasionally remind you, prodigious accumulators of wealth. You might want to keep these little notes on the side. UAW was the bottom quartile. That's nothing to do with the... Um, uh, auto workers. These are people with their net worth was half the average accumulator of wealth. Okay, so they are the under accumulators of wealth. That's the bottom quartile. UAWs, under accumulators of wealth, their net worth was half of the average. Now, I already shared the typical perception of the wealthy. What did they find from their research? What's the reality? Well, the vast majority buy homes worth less than $1 million. About 30% bought their homes for $300,000, which, by the way, was also the median. They drive old cars. PAWs, remember these are the prodigious, often buy their used cars from UAWs, the under-accumulators. You see, the under-accumulators bought the finest to impress people. The PAWs want a good deal. 
Let's talk a little more about the UAWs. And remember, that's the under-accumulators of wealth, especially the high-income UAWs, which are the ones included in the survey. Their net worth is half of the average formula. They earn a lot and spend a lot. They have the most expensive homes. Their income is from their job or their business. And maybe the most important point, their kids become dependent forever. Okay, now let's contrast those points to the PAWs. Again, these are the prodigious accumulators of wealth. Their net worth is twice the average formula. These are the wealthy. Even though they may earn less than many UAWs, they have nice homes and quality neighborhoods. Their income comes primarily from investments. They live below their means. You see, frugality is the foundation of wealth. Impressing the public isn't the goal of most of these first-generation millionaires. Financial independence is. Why did I say first-generation? Keep in mind, they kicked out any inheritance in this net worth or in your income. Now, no, there is a clear variation in the ratio of net worth to income. So it's not like everybody that's prodigious has two times that average. It's, it's going to vary all over the map. And if you look for just one indicator that differentiates the most prodigious, maybe I don't think you gave a term for that, that indicator, are you ready? They are used vehicle-prone buyers. You see, these vehicle, these used vehicle-prone shoppers have the highest ratio of net worth to income. And an FYI, I did the calculations. I fit that profile of the used vehicle-prone shoppers. And yes, I tend to buy used vehicles. And by the way, the second best type of vehicle in the world? A company car. Anyway, the... Um, Authors, now this is this is kind of sort of key points again you might want to jot down or from the archive you'll want to jot them down later on. The authors listed seven common denominators of real millionaires. So you're taking some notes here. They live well below their means. In other words, they're frugal. Secondly, they pursue wealth very efficiently. Third, they have little interest in social status. They got no financial help from their parents. Their adult children pay their own way. They identify profitable markets. And lastly, they choose occupations wisely. So how do you stack up on those seven? Give it some thought. Now let me share a few of the great quotes in this book. And there really are a number of them. But I'm just going to share a few with you. UAWs, and again, these are the under-accumulators. Big hat, no cattle which for non-Texans I should translate, means you have a lot of crap in the garage or basement, but no net worth. Now, one of the reasons that millionaires are economically successful is that they think differently. Now, does that sound like something Harvecker mentioned? And again, this is a direct quote. One of the reasons that millionaires are economically successful is that they think differently. That's exactly what Harvecker said. Wealth is more often the result of lifestyle and hard work, perseverance, planning, and most of all, self-discipline. Self-discipline? Does that sound like something I mentioned related to desire at the very beginning? Whatever your income, always live below your means. Now let me tie back to the concept of money being a result. Again, direct quote. Money should never change one's values. Making money is only a report card. It's a way to tell you how you're doing. Now, several years later, Thomas Stanley wrote another book called The Millionaire Mind. And as I mentioned, similar title to Harvecker's, but I'm going to differentiate. This one is Thomas Stanley, The Millionaire Mind. This book, again, is based on research, but much more in-depth research of the truly wealthy people. He tried to exclude from this sample those people that earned a lot and didn't have much net worth, if you will, those big cattle, big hat, no cattle, sorry. Okay, let me let me tell you a, a, a little bit of the statistics around the sample, just so you can help put your arms around uh, who they interviewed. Their sample includes 733 wealthy people. And the median income was $440,000 per year with a median net worth of $4 million. The average income, 
was $750,000 with an average net worth of $7 million. So obviously there are several very prodigious accumulators of wealth that screw the average, skew, now be careful on that word, skew the average much higher. The homes they buy verified the numbers from the earlier book. They typically bought a home for 300000 and they lived in it for many decades. And now those homes are on average worth $1.4 million. So they buy good homes in quality neighborhoods, which eventually appreciate. And the reverse of what held true for cars holds true for houses. You see, UAWs, the underachievers, often buy homes from PAWs. Because PAWs invest in appreciating assets like homes, and UAWs want to spend on depreciating assets, and they want things that are really fancy and impress people. Now, what jobs do they have? This was a, obviously a very uh, interesting segment of the book. The largest group are business owners. Welcome, entrepreneurs. You are part of the biggest group of millionaires. The next largest were senior executives, and then they're followed by lawyers and doctors, and then by salespeople. Now, you'll notice there's a common characteristic. None of those professions have a steady income. Their income depends on how successful they are. The millionaire mind introduced some new terminology, which I found particularly appealing, since I'm a finance guy. When we think of rich or affluent people, there are actually two distant types. In the prior book, we referred to them as the high-income UAWs, the underachievers of wealth, and the prodigious accumulators of wealth, the PAWs. In this book, he referred to them as income sheet affluent, which he occasionally called IAs. I prefer a full acronym. If you want to keep an acronym for this one, I'll use it in the future, is ISAs, income sheet affluent. These people have money because they earn a lot. And like UAWs, they also spend a lot. So their net worth might be minimal or even negative. They're the ones that have the most expensive homes. Their incomes are primarily from their jobs or businesses. Now, the second type of affluent person he referred to as balance sheet affluent and occasionally referred to them as BAs. I prefer the acronym BSA, balance sheet affluent. You may recall an earlier show where I reviewed and even critiqued the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Now, don't misunderstand me, and in that show, I hopefully was very clear, it is a wonderful book. And I might even go further and say it should be the first book on personal finance every kid should read once they're in the third grade. I wish I had. One of my critiques of the book is that Kiyosaki and Lecter, the authors, didn't properly explain the various parts of the balance sheet. In that show, I referred to IGAs as a better indicator of wealth accumulation than net worth. So now you can add to your lexicon those three things. IGAs, income-generating assets. ISAs, income statement affluent. And BSAs, balance sheet affluent. And it's the BSAs, the balance sheet affluent, that Stanley and I would agree are the truly wealthy. Now, for those listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Rod Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, or if you missed prior shows, you can find the archives on WealthDNA.us. Today, we're discussing the D in WealthDNA, using information from several great personal finance books to explain the concept and verify the importance of the D, which stands for desire, as well as decision, dedication, drive, and discipline to become wealthy. I was just covering some key points from Thomas Stanley's The Millionaire Mind. The book is subdivided into eight major topics that best describe these wealthy people. I wish we had enough time to cover all of them, but we don't. So I'll touch on the first three and hopefully pique your interest enough to get a copy of the book or to reread it if you have in the past. The first topic are the success factors that the wealthy believe are the most important to their financial success. Dr. Stanley provided them 30 success factors, which he, by the way, got from prior research and focus groups, so they're a decent category of 30 success factors. And he asked these people to rank them. Now, number one, the number one success factor will probably surprise you. It has nothing to do with the image that Hollywood portrays, that good looks, ruthless business dealings, take advantage of others are what makes people rich. No, the number one success factor is honesty or integrity. Number two, this one will not surprise you after hearing the first part of the show, discipline. 
These wealthy people are self-motivated. Many use a phrase that I've mentioned in the past. The harder they work, the luckier they get. They are disciplined and focus on increasing their net worth. Number three success factor, social skills. Getting along with people. See, even leaders need to know how to work people to recognize everyone's contribution. No one is a self-made millionaire. They have to rely on others to succeed. And by the way, in that list of success factors was a deep-seated faith. You might be surprised on that one. So I suspect many of those wealthy people will be in church today, tomorrow, and throughout the year. Now, Dr. Stanley shares a wonderful story I'd like to share with you about a former athlete he met at one of his own seminars. The athlete had the opportunity of playing at the University of Alabama under head coach Bear Bryant, a legend. To try to get the essence of the coach's style, he asked the athlete, what was the first thing that Coach Bryant said to you when you arrived in Alabama? He lined us all up and asked, have you called your parents today? Now, this was a question no one had anticipated. He said some of these big football players were standing there with their mouths wide open, wondering what that had to do with becoming a great football team. So Coach Bryant went on to say that you need to call your parents and thank them. None of you would be here at the level you are if your parents hadn't helped and supported you. Be sure to call them and thank them. Touching story. The second top of the book, topic in, uh, in this book is education or the school days. Again, some surprises. Because if you ask most people what they would assume about the education and intellect of wealthy people, most would assume they have a high IQ, they had high SAT scores, they went to the top colleges and were the top students in their class. What's the reality? Almost all wealthy people had a college education, but very few were at the top of their class. Being at the top of your class doesn't mean you learn to be creative or even to think for yourself. And also, genius does not translate to people's skills. Two key lessons I got from this. Having poor grades does not give you an excuse for being poor. So drop the excuse. Teachers and parents have to be careful about what they tell their kids when they're young. If you've ever told your kids or students that they'll never be successful if they don't get good grades and do well in school, you may have planted a very negative program in their subconscious. And the flip side, if your parents said that to you, you now know you have something in your wealth files that you need to change. The third topic in the book is courage. It takes courage to start a business, as he said, to give up a salary, to invest in yourself, to rely on yourself. You have to believe in yourself to succeed. Every day the wealthy risk failure, they risk that their decisions are wrong. You see, the wealthy don't conquer risk, they just learn to deal with it. They manage risk just like managing stress. I'd like to add an analogy here. Risk, just like stress, is good for you as long as you keep it under control. To be wealthy, you have to believe in yourself. Dr. Stanley highly recommends Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking, a long-time bestseller. There you go, another suggestion for a gift during the 12 days of Christmas. Now, other people that don't become wealthy want a steady income. They're risk-averse. Incidentally, ISAs, remember them, the income sheet affluent, are risk-averse. Since they spend whatever they earn, they can't risk losing that income. Now, hopefully I've shared enough information from these books to convince you that the rich or wealthy think differently than others. One of the primary differences is from the programming or conditioning they had or overcame. I could be even more blunt and say the brainwashing they had. Yesterday I was describing the plan flow for this radio show to my wife. A key question she asked is, okay, if I have some of these non-supportive beliefs in my subconscious, how do I change them? Now I need to go back to Harvecker's Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. He actually had the best information on this topic. Yeah, Harvecker's Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. For those of you who already read the book, you may have missed this very important message, just like I did on my first reading. So I highly recommend rereading all of these books, especially if it's been a number of years since you read them. Now, if you're already on your way to becoming a billionaire, it may not be necessary. But I sure hope a few of the highlights of this show have helped you reaffirm that you truly are 
that you truly are on the right track and have a millionaire mind. Of course, I prefer a billionaire mind. Now, there are two key formulas or processes which Harvecker mentioned in his book, and, and, and I'm sure these are pretty standard frameworks in books on psychology or the change process. So this isn't something that he's developed, but he is showing how to use them. The first I've already mentioned, the process of manifestation, but let me repeat it now when we include what he developed through the book. Our programming is what leads to our thoughts, which leads to our feelings, leads to our actions and to our results. He adds the three sources of programming, which again should be familiar to you. What we hear, what we see, and what we feel or experience. You remember these probably as the auditory, the visual, and the kinesthetic modes that each of us use. The second key process he talks about is the four-step process to change. Awareness, understanding, disassociation, and fourth, reconditioning. If you go back to the very beginning of this show, you'll notice that I happen to mention those early steps, especially when I referred to addictions. Remember what I said, that half of solving any problem is knowing there is a problem. That's the awareness step. Now, Mr. Ecker suggests applying this four-step process to each of the three forms of programming individually. So that gives you a 12-step process. Let's start with the first form of programming. What did you hear in the past? And the past could be when you were little or even yesterday. What did you hear that was non-supportive of becoming wealthy? This would include your family take, talking about the filthy rich, your pastor talking about the camel passing through the eye of a needle, etc. What were those things you heard? He suggests writing them down to build that awareness. Then you need to understand where those expressions came from. Was it from people that were trying to keep you from being wealthy? Or was it from family, friends, and pastors, maybe even teachers who really had good intentions and were merely repeating some of their own programming? Were those people wealthy? If they weren't wealthy, why do you want to take financial advice or adopt non-supported wealth, wealth programming from them? A point I've made on this show many times. The next step is disassociation, recognizing that these beliefs that others imposed on you and you choose to not adopt them, and then reconditioning. Harvecker is a big proponent of using declarations, positive statements that help you recognize that, that uh, uh, these are beliefs that others held that you don't choose to accept. Let me share an example, and he shares one for almost every one of the wealth files. I create the exact level of my financial success. And he suggests putting your hand on your heart to feel the vibration cre created as you make that declaration. You need to use and repeat these declarations for quite a bit of time to really change your subconscious, because that's the purpose in this process. Now, you may be thinking that saying these declarations day after day and maybe several times a day seems awfully hokey. His response, I'd rather be hokey and really rich than cool and really poor. He also touches on the importance of having your spouse work with you in this process to understand what they had heard and for them to understand the process you're going through. Now, you want to repeat the same process for the things you saw. Maybe the way your parents managed their finances and investments, or maybe you saw people giving expensive gifts for Christmas to how much they cared about somebody else. And then repeat this process for the things you felt or experienced in the past. Maybe you invested in the wrong stocks at the wrong time and had bad results, and that's keeping you from investing again. So there you have it, a simple 12-step process, and so often is the case. It is simple, but not easy. You have to decide, is going through that process and all the reconditioning worth it? Or maybe it would be much easier to focus on being comfortable. And assuming, as so many people do, that if something goes wrong, the government will take care of you. And why accumulate for retirement? The government will provide Social Security. Personally, I won't bet my future on something from the government other than them wanting more taxes. There's one more important topic that is touched on in these books, but not really emphasized sufficiently. So I'd like to take a little extra time, make sure we cover it. Now, if you happen to attend of one, one of Harv Ecker's million, um, Millionaire Mind Intensive courses, it's a three-day course, they focus on this topic. The topic is why? That simple question that little kids so often ask, and we as adults don't ask 
often enough. Why do you want to be wealthy? To address this point, I'd like to start with two quotes from a book I've mentioned on recent shows. Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. I think the first quote is very profound. One of the key characters in the books asked whether it, about the book, sorry, characters in the book asked about what type of person he felt was most depraved. The answer: someone without a purpose. And you may recall, if you read the book, this was Francisco Domingo Carlos Andres Sebastian Danconia, generally referred to in the book as Francisco Danconia. When I heard that quote, I realized there was some real wisdom in that comment. See, occasionally during my life, I'd ask myself, what do I want to do when I grow up? But I'd never really ask myself what the purpose of my life is. Fortunately, in the last 10 years, I have figured it out. And it all came about by asking myself what I wanted to do when I grow up. Most people really don't know their purpose in life, and unfortunately, many will never do, never know. Do you know your purpose in life? Maybe this is something you could do as you meet with family, friends, and business associates during the holidays. Ask them what is the purpose in their life. It may just turn out to be the best gift you can give anyone. To have them think about the answer to that question. It reminds me of the old saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I guess we could add, and there's also no need to hurry. The second quote is buried in a dialogue between one of the key characters and a man that's viewed as one of the greatest philosophers that ever lived, who was a professor at a top university and had three star pupils. All happen to be key characters in this book. Now, just a little background. Those three students were only 16 when they asked to attend one of his college courses. He was impressed by both their chutzpah and their intellect, so he agreed. In this conversation, he said that those three students not only were the youngest in his class, they also received the highest grade. As he described it, when he asked each of them what they planned to be when they grow up, they didn't mention what they wanted to be. They told them that what they will be, and each planned to change the world in his own way. Had I read this book earlier, I would not have been asking myself what I want to be when I grow up. I would have been asking my purpose, and what is it I will be. The particular story resonated with me as a great depiction of the D in wealth DNA. Those young men had made a decision. They didn't just plan to succeed. They were determined to succeed. Granted, that book is a fictional work, but if you read it today, even if you read it a few uh, years ago in the past, you might, want, you might just realize that Western society may not be far from turning out the lights. The book seems to be a very strong predictor of how much damage to society can be caused by people in powerful positions with no purpose in life other than to survive. Now, a key premise in that book is that people with a true desire and knowledge, need to be allowed to succeed. When governments try to restrict, regulate, or tax those people, they will survive, but society may not. Now, how does this all tie back to your earlier question of why? Why do you want to become wealthy? You see, the stronger your reason or motivation for making money or being successful, the higher your chances of success. Even before you declare your desire to be wealthy, you need to decide why. If your why is to live in a big fancy house and drive an expensive car, you're actually striving to become an ISA. Even though you may become affluent, it won't be lasting. If your why is to provide security for your family and education for your kids, then your chances of becoming wealthy are much higher. If your why is to have the resource to help others and to improve society, to change the world, you might just be unstoppable. The phrase that Harvecker uses in the uh, Millionaire Mind Intensive Seminar I mentioned, the stronger your why, the easier the how. Very powerful statement in that. Today we focused on the D in Wealth DNA, and some listeners might decide it's not worth all the effort the dedication, the discipline, the commitment, and they'll decide to stay part of the 50% of the population that never strives to gain the knowledge and take the action to become wealthy. Recall from the process of manifestation, results 
come from actions. Well, how do I best wrap this up? First of all, I guess I'm glad you stuck with me through this fairly heavy topic for Christmas Eve. I sure hope it helps set the stage for making your New Year's resolutions. If you truly desire to be wealthy, you now know you need to answer the question why. And you also have a clear 12-step process to change the wealth files in your brain. The old wealth files got there through programming or conditioning. And changing them is what's required. Okay, And the contents that need to be changed are the ones that are non-supportive of becoming wealthy. Now, I'd like to go back and emphasize just a few key points. Remember that wealth, just like health, your weight, your investment portfolio, are all results. They're results. And the only way you can change those results is to change what's going on below the surface. And yes, the examples in the book... Uh, books and the quotes I cited were focused on money and wealth, but maybe there are other results in life, in your life, that you're not happy with and want to change. Even if you conquer this addiction to poverty, doesn't mean you still don't have addictions to chemical dependencies, an un- unhealthy lifestyle, or you're overweight. As you write down your resolutions, I'm sure all listeners write down uh, those resolutions, and more importantly, you review them periodically. Please consider the programming, the thoughts, the feelings, and actions that need to change to get different results. Setting the goal is necessary, but not sufficient. If you set a goal to be wealthy or to lose weight and you have non-supportive beliefs in your subconscious, you may not be successful. Personally, I want you to be successful. And I'd like to add one more word to the list of D words in this obstacle. Dream, which ties back to the why. What is that dream that provides the drive and dedication for you to become wealthy? Define it. Understand it. Convert it from I plan to accomplish to I will accomplish. Everything important that people accomplish starts with a dream or a vision. You have to visualize and keep that dream in front of you. Dreaming is, again, one of those gifts we were born with, and somehow society, and specifically our parents, teachers, friends, and family kill it off. Maybe you've heard phrases like, if you don't pay attention to what I'm saying, you'll never amount to anything. And yet, what you were thinking about at that time just might have been more creative and more important for your future than whatever your parent or teacher was saying at the time. Somehow, most of us conform, and that ability to dream dies off. Take some time this holiday to do some dreaming. And make some decisions how strong your desire is to become wealthy or healthy or deal with an addiction, or lose weight. Now, we recently started a series of shows on alternative investments, which is intended to provide you some more knowledge on on areas of investment which most investors are never exposed to. Remember that the N in Wealth DNA stands for knowledge. On our last show, we had Matthew Tuttle, the author of one of the best-known books on alternative investments. In our next show, we'll have Howard Orloff on crowdfunding. A topic in the news that's bound to be in the news, it will be in the news, I assure you, over the next five years or longer. You don't need to read about it in the paper or wait to see it on CNN. Just tune in to the Wealth DNA radio show. Many investment advisors will tell you to stay away from these alternative investments since they're much riskier than financial products that they earn a commission on. Coincidence, maybe. And hopefully when you hear that, you remember many of the things you heard on this show about risk. And remember that wealthy people learn to manage risk while others shun it. And of course, I should remind you the good way to increase your wealth is to tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals. Some great ideas inspire you to be as wealthy as you want to be. And we have some great guests lined up for uh, this series on alternative investments. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show will be next year, the second Monday of January, Monday, January 14th, 9 a.m. Arizona time. Same place, same time. And remember, the archive of past shows and this show are available on WealthDNA.us. If you have some questions or suggestions, if you haven't received my emails reminding you about the show, just send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And by the way, the next show on Boomer the Babe Network is at 11 a.m. Arizona time with Lisa Bahar, a licensed marriage and family therapist. So if your spouse is holding you back from becoming wealthy, You both might want to tune in at 11. See you next year to keep improving your wealth DNA. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. 
You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.